the detective had what he called 28 proofs that he wanted to research and if he could tick them off. And he did. 28 things he saw in the past life regression did happen to this artist. When I've been taken through past life regressions, I've seen things that I have verified later for myself. And you know, there's that phrase, oh, well, I'll believe it when I see it, but I have seen it. It does work. Whether or not the past lives are real or not, the therapy does work. Hello, everyone. That was the voice of today's guest, Simon Baum. Simon is a past life regression therapist and host of the Past Lives podcast, where he investigates all sorts of evidence for survival of the human soul. Having produced two episodes in the A Question of Memory series, where I basically concluded there was little evidence to believe hypnotic regression could reliably be used to recover memories, I thought it would be good to have someone on to challenge that position. And who better than a guest who employs such techniques to recover memories from different lives altogether? In this interview, I asked Simon about the therapeutic benefits he sees in his work, and why he feels these are not best explained as just theatre of the mind. We then get into whether there are any dangers in conflating fantasy and reality, and finally what the metaphysical implications of all this is. I start out in the obvious place of asking Simon how he got into this work. I've always had a fascination with supernatural stuff. Even when I was 10 years old, I went to a local public library and got all the books out that I could. In those days, I'd read anything, whether it was a ghost, Bigfoot, UFOs, you know, anything. But uh, as I got older, I read more books and they kind of uh, set me on two different paths of interest. One is about UFOs. The other one is about evidence of an afterlife, trying to find out if there's evidence that consciousness survives death. And it wasn't such a thing where it was all very woo and spiritual and crystals and astrology, what have you. It was more a thing of, well, where's the evidence? And so that's what my podcast is about. And so you have people with near-death experiences who see things while they're dead and then late, they're later confirmed. And, you know, the doctors will say, well, you couldn't possibly know that because your body was dead. Your brain was flatlined. And so I talked to um, this guy called Eben Alexander, and he was the professor of neurosurgery at Harvard Medical School. And uh, he said to me that when your heart stops, your brain will flatline between two to 20 seconds later. And obviously in that state, there is no way it could make and retain complex memories. But this is what we see happening with people who have near-death experiences. So I am going back into the 1980s. I was going to the College of Psychic Studies in London, and that was set up by the Society for Psychical Research. And they were around at the turn of the century, back in 1900. And they had uh, members like Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and uh, the Astronomer Royal and all these kind of scientists in those days who were trying to investigate this stuff. And Sir William Barrett, who wrote some great books. But anyway, at the College of Psychic Studies, I wasn't a student, but you could go there and that place, they would train people doing mediums and psychics and take people through past life regressions. And there'd be these people they call trance mediums and channels and you could pay a little bit of money and sit with one of the students and they could practice on you or you pay a lot more money and you could sit with one of the teachers who are you know supposed to be a lot more developed in these areas and i found uh, the lady there she took me through a past life regression in the late 80s and that was my first one and so over time over the decades i've been taken through quite a few of them and I got to a point where I really wanted to do this myself, but I'm the sort of person where I, I have to do it properly. I'm not just going to sort of uh, just start doing it without training. So what I did was I went on a full course that was 10 months long at college that was to be a clinical hypnotherapist. So that would work with all sorts of things, you know, helping people with phobias and stopping smoking and weight loss and all these kinds of things. And it was interesting that I, I learned there that the um, 
British Medical Council in the 1950s said that hypnosis should be standard training for all doctors, which was never brought in to be the the thing. You know, doctors aren't trained in hypnosis. But I also found out that back in the Victorian era, there was the army were in India, the British army, and there were over 100 soldiers who became very ill and they needed surgery. And the, the hypnotist came to them and he was able to hypnotize these soldiers so that they felt no pain while they were being operated on. And over a hundred of them. And this is part of the, you know, the, the records of the British Army that this happened. And the, this is something I learned to do also um, in the course. And there's a thing they call hypnobirthing, where, you know, women, when they're giving birth, they're hypnotized to feel no pain. And it works. Uh, the thing is, though, it's not like just the hypnotist comes down and spends 10 minutes with them and that's it. You have to see the hypnotherapist over several sessions and training you how to get your mind into that state to be properly hypnotized. Because being hypnotized is like um, something you need to practice. The more you do at it, the better you get at being hypnotized and the deeper you can get. But even when I was in the class... Um, I'm rambling a bit now, but I'll just finish off with this. I was in the class and we were hypnotized and we were said, while we're hypnotized, we were told that our hand is in a bucket of ice and that this session, this was like 20 minutes of talking about the hand being in the ice, imagining your hands in the ice and you're feeling your hand, it's getting number and number. And he brought us out of the hypnosis and I looked at my two hands and my hand that I imagined was in the bucket of ice was numb. And I looked at it and it was white next to mm. my other hand. And it was like the power of the mind there. It was just a real great demonstration to me about how hypnosis can work. And so I found, for me, it was the right path to go down. And so it wasn't like I was a therapist to begin with and then found somebody going into a past life which is the story of some guys that have really investigated mm. this. I was just, uh, you know, into it in the first place. Okay. Okay. That's, that's a great setup for the rest of my questions, really. So what I thought we might do for a moment is just park any questions about the underlying reality of past lives, whether people are accessing them or not. It's very interesting that you're so aware of the power of the mind also doing this and the, the sheer power of the imagination. But just set that aside for one moment and just talk about the therapeutic benefit, irrespective of, of underpinning reality of them. So disclosure to the audience, I did a past life regression with Simon just a few days ago, and I thought it would be a, a good sort of bonus for this interview. And I'm not um, a stranger to doing kind of regression thing, regression type exercises, but regarding past life, I've only ever done one of them prior to that. And that was about 12 years before. And I certainly found it psychologically insightful. And um, also, and I didn't realize this really, I went to a friend's house to do it. So it was guaranteed to be quiet and walking home afterwards. I realized just what a different place I was in, in my mind and how everything had just slowed right down through it. And I hadn't really been aware of that when it was going on, but it was only when I, I stepped out, it was kind of like, you know, you, you come out of the pub in the afternoon after a couple of drinks or something and you, you're in reality that everyone else is going about their day and, and you realize you're in a, a really different place then. And that, that's kind of, it was, I was really like altered kind of place of consciousness. So uh, that was fascinating. And, and I don't sort of doubt the, um, the therapeutic benefit of it but maybe simon you could speak to i suppose what led you specifically then into thinking past life was a, a preferred form of therapy than doing um more regular hypnosis of people and what kind of therapeutic benefits you've directly seen yourself through this kind of work my intention from the outset was to do past life regression but i wanted to learn to be a clinical hypnotherapist um, you know, so that I really knew what I was doing. And I, I've got my diploma with the National Council for Hypnotherapy in the UK. And then I went on and got certified certified in past life regression therapy. And it's interesting um, when you do hypnotherapy with people, say if somebody wants to stop smoking, they have something called the Dickens pattern. And it's because, you know, in... Uh, Charles Dickens, you have the ghosts of Christmas, the ghost of Christmas past and 
present and future. Mm -hmm. And what the Dickens pattern does is it, it kind of takes you down this pathway of where you currently are and you, you get the client to imagine this and you say, okay, you're on this pathway and you're walking along and you get to a fork and you could go right or left. If you go left, it takes you down your life path where you continue to smoke. If you go right, it takes you down the path where you give up smoking. And when you go down the left-hand path, you talk to the client about how you're, you're losing money because you're spending so much and you smell and people don't want to talk to you because you have such bad breath. And eventually it takes you down the path where you end up in hospital and you're in bed struggling to breathe and your family's around you. Sounds awful, doesn't it? But that's the point <laughs> is what you're trying to hammer home to the client's subconscious. And then you take them down the right-hand path which is when they've given up smoking and you talk to them about how they've got more money and they can save for a nice holiday and people want to be around you because you don't smell so much and how you live a longer life and you can spend time with your children and grandchildren and it's all rosy. And it's weird how this sinks into the subconscious. And so what you're doing there is setting up these hypothetical scenarios and there's another one called the red balloon technique where you you hypnotize somebody and then you say, okay, imagine you're in this big field and the other side of the field is a big red hot air balloon and you're wearing this big backpack and it's full of everything that stresses you out. So let's say this person's come because they got anxiety and stress about work, something in the workplace. And you talk to them about all these different things that are in the backpack that are causing them problems and you walk them over the field so the hot air balloon, you say, right, take that backpack off and you're taking everything out of the backpack and you're putting it in the basket underneath the hot air balloon. So the client's imagining relieving themselves of all these stresses and anxiety. And then you cut the rope and the hot air balloon drifts away and takes away all these things. And again, it's kind of symbolic. It's, it's um, setting up this idea of stuff being taken away so when we come to past life regression, you see things that are kind of, can, you could describe as symbolic. You might say, okay, there's no such thing as past lives. Um, but with past life regression, the things spring up in the client's mind without me describing them. In those other things I told you about, I describe it all for them and tell them where they right. are. And with the past life regression, it's that thing where I just say, okay, where are you? I don't tell them where they are and they might say, well, I'm doing this thing in past life and I'm this old and what have you. And so it's like they're setting up this uh, scenario, this symbolic thing themselves. And that le can lead to the healing. And I've, I had a, a client, a woman who could not be a passenger in a car. She said it was really getting her down and affecting the people around her. She would get such panic attacks and anxiety and she could just about bear it if she was lying down on the back seat with a blanket over her head. And the, the weird thing was if she was driving, she was fine. She just couldn't be a passenger. And so I took her, you know, into this past life. I'm talking about it as though it was, it's real now, but you know, we put aside yeah, that fine. idea there. And, um, she found herself in the 1950s and she was like 17, 18 years old and she's in America and she was with her boyfriend in that life and he just got his car and they went out driving. There was a huge accident and he died. And so, you know, I mean, if that happened to you in this life, you could see how it might make you mm. anxious about being in a car anyway. But it seemed to be a scenario there of kind of saying to her this is why you can't be a passenger this is something that happened that's made you very fearful and it gives you this anxiety so again i kind of look at it like there's that thing with the red balloon taking the anxiety away and then there's this thing this scenario in the past life of showing how this thing might have caused this anxiousness and so there's processes we have where we kind of, uh, it's called breaking the bonds to the past life or cutting the cords or releasing the negative energy that's bleeding through from the past life. And you go through these processes with the client 
and they have a tremendous sense of relief. And I get emails back saying, you know, this has changed my life. I feel so much better. Another uh, example would be a woman who had uh, terrible eczema on her leg. And she had come for a past life regression. There was nothing to do with her eczema. But we found her as a hunter in a forest. And she stepped in a bear trap. And these big metal claws grabbed her leg. And exactly the spot where the eczema was. And she was in her fifties. She tried everything to get rid of the eczema. And it was weeks later, she emailed me and said, the eczema is completely gone. And that was just spontaneous. It didn't go through a process of releasing the energy or anything like that. And so, you know, I get these things coming up over and over. There was a guy who had this terrible pain in his stomach and the doctors couldn't find anything for it. And they couldn't find out why it was there. And he couldn't, explain it there'd be no accidents and we went to a past life where he got into a fight and he was stabbed in the belly and uh, i saw him again for the second session about this and he was saying the pain has gone like 50 percent less than what it was before and it was quite funny because he said he sits in front of the telly poking himself in the belly because hmm. he can't believe how much the pain has decreased and so this really does work as a therapy and does help people and there's a lot of emotional stuff that comes up during sessions. I often see people in tears and sometimes their muscles are twitching. I see it on their shoulders and things. And it, it's something going on there that seems subconscious. seems um, like there's a big emotional release. But uh, um, it does it does work. Whether or not the past lives are real or not, the therapy does work yeah you see i find it very hard not to find that incredibly compelling right because it, you it seems like the mind would have to create a fantasy around an injury to explain it away in some way and that almost seems less likely than you're actually accessing memory to me just on the face of it and i can relate to it not from a past life but i think i i shared this story with you when we were talking a week or so ago, that I remember developing a back problem about 10 or 12 years ago, uh, which meant I had to stop a job I was doing. And then the back problem persisted for around about nine months and it became quite problematic because I was finding money difficult. I really needed to uh, get another job, but I could only work for a few hours a day and it would all seize up. And nothing I was doing was really helping. And I did a kind of, to call a, a medium sized story short, I did a a kind of regression on it okay as i tried to feel into my spine as what was going on and i had these memories surface but they weren't past life memories there were memories from like a few months before where i'd felt i became aware how trapped i'd felt in this job and how i'd wanted to go off and do things um out of the country and travel a bit and, and all the rest but felt really stuck and couldn't do that and um, then all of a sudden the back problem had manifested and it just became apparent in my psyche that this was my mind body's way of solving the problem and as a result of really not sort of standing up for myself better and like saying, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to leave the job and do what I want to do. I, I developed this really dysfunctional way of solving the problem. And I got off the bed and thought, well, that's interesting. I wonder if that will like help my back recover at all now. And then I picked something off the floor and my back was just fine. And I like, like the guy poking himself in the stomach, I went around like just dropping things and picking them up off the floor for <laughs> like several hours. Cause I, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. So like, it, there's something very logical about that to me. There's something very logical about you have a, a problem and you come up with a solution and that solution is kind of dysfunctional and it leads you into uh, a not such great place eventually. And then you have to go back and examine uh, what was it, the origin? Where, where do we go off course here? And then when you, when you see that, you can get back on course. There's something very logical about that to me. So there's something very logical about this, um, the, the, the way you're describing it. Um, on one level, it makes perfect sense to me, right? But to move on to like my next question then what what's drawn me um to do this interview is a circuitous route really but apart from sort of general interest in these things specifically i was doing a series on conspiracy theory and looking at the underpinnings because on this podcast i'm very interested in where people 
diverge in their perceptions and how you can have different groups of people looking at what is apparently the same world, but seeing it in such very different ways. And conspiracy theory gives a, a, an opportunity to do that. And what I became aware of is that a lot of modern conspiracy culture is underpinned by people who have recovered memories, either recovered memories of alien abduction or maybe past lives, or being involved in something like the CIA's MKUltra program. And there's a, a massive shift in how you see the world takes place, whether you believe that that's true, whether you believe people can recover memory or they can't. And this has really divided psychotherapy and psychology to a great degree. And this was very interesting to me because you've got two people who are really expert in what they're doing, looking at the same problem, but using a totally different set of tools. So the psychologists have their laboratory experiments in this clinical setting, and the psychotherapists are like getting rolling their sleeves up and getting in at the, in the trenches and, and working directly with people. And it tends to be psychologists are very cynical, very cynical about recovered memory, whereas psychotherapists, a lot of them really accept it and think it's a path to healing. And, and both kind of see the other as missing the point, whereas the psychologist might see the, the psychotherapist just not really being very good at data and being taken in by these anecdotes. The therapists see the psychologist as doing abstract nonsense off in their laboratories. It doesn't apply to the real world. So this, this to me, looks like a very viable controversy. And um, I have to say, I ended up siding a bit more with the um, the psychologist and thinking that the evidence for like repression and recovery wasn't as strong as maybe I'd initially thought it was. And then, so I thought at some point I should challenge myself on this. I should have someone on who could really put like the opposite side. And that's what we're, we're doing today. So um, what I'd like to move from is like, if, if I've established that I completely agree with the therapeutic benefit, and it's not hard for me to see that from my own experience with you and at other times, um, what have you seen that makes you think maybe there's more than that going on beyond beyond healing itself? Okay. Cause we could say that's in some ways evidence, cause how else would you explain that? You know, maybe, but it's a bit, tricky to explain, but have you had um, in your clinical experience, people tell you about things that they've then verified? Have you interviewed people um, who have done research into memory recovered through hypnosis of past lives that's been verified? What would you say the things are that convince you there's something more than just the theater of the mind going on here? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I had a guest on the podcast called uh, Robert Snow, and he was a detective in Philadelphia, a homicide detective for 38 years. And uh, he's, he's got a book out about this. And um, somebody in his precinct was hassling him to do a past life regression. And being a homicide detective, he was a tough guy. You know, he's, he was uh, out there fighting people and he's, he's got a gun and everything. And he said that uh, this woman, they were saying, hey, you should do this. And he didn't want to do it. He said to me, he thought it was a whole load of baloney. It was rubbish. He didn't want to do it, didn't believe in it. And uh, he said it got to the point in the precinct, he'd be walking down the hallway and he'd see her coming and he'd quickly dive into an office to avoid her. And eventually he thought, oh, this is just getting silly. I'll do the regression. They won't even be able to hypnotize me. And he did the regression and he was hypnotized and he went and saw all this stuff about this past life. He saw himself painting a portrait and he saw himself in a big um, like artist studio and he knew it was Paris for some reason. And it was a long studio and it was like the ceiling was made of windows. That's why it was an artist studio. There was so much light coming in. So he saw all these different things. And uh, he came out of it a little confused and he decided to investigate. Now, this was back in the early 90s. So, you know, there's no internet. And he's in Philadelphia and he's, he thought, well, you know, there was this portrait. I must have seen it somewhere. And that's where my subconscious got it from. And he started doing all this research. And being a detective, he knew how to investigate stuff. And so he was going to museums and libraries and getting all these art books out. He just could not find this portrait. I think you know where this story is going. Hmm. And uh, he went to New York and um, Chicago, could not find anything. And after a couple of years, he kind of gave up on it. And he went on holiday to Florida uh, with his wife and they were in these art galleries. And he went upstairs to where, where you might say where the crap paintings are. And uh, 
there it was that portrait and it was quite distinct because it was a woman with um a humpback woman so it it was not like uh a, there's lots of portraits of women and he could have been confused or something mm -hmm. and so he, he he asked the guy there at the gallery who is who painted this and they they gave him this leaflet about this painter who was never famous they his pictures aren't anywhere in galleries or what have you but now he had a name and so he was started searching out this guy but to cut a long story short the detective had what he called 28 proofs that he wanted to research and if he could tick them off and he did 28 things he saw in the past life regression did happen to this artist exactly as he saw them and so he verified all these things that he saw in a past life regression did actually happen and so that's just one example and it was a, a great guest great talker and i when i've been taken through past life regressions i've seen things that i have verified later for myself and you know there's that phrase oh well i'll believe it when i see it but i have seen it in one of my past life regressions i saw myself as a small child in a park and i knew for some reason it was 1895 and this is one of the things about past life regression sometimes you just know stuff and i was there with mother and father and there was a child in a pram and there was a dog and this park was quite distinct it was on quite a slope it's a kind of place where if you were a town planner you wouldn't look at that slope and say hey that's a great place for a park it was it was uh odd to be there and then a couple of years later i was driving through this part of north london I'd never been before and there was the park exactly as I'd seen it. it hadn't seemed to have changed much at all in over a hundred years and the Victorian houses all around the park were exactly the same as the houses I'd seen in this past life regression and that's not the only time that I've seen stuff in a past life regression and then it's been verified but it, it wasn't such a thing where I could find their name and their exact date and the you know confirm all these tiny details but when you are there you get this particular feeling it's like a shock and you, you you're stunned and you're gobsmacked and it's like your brain comes to a full stop for a few seconds and you just can't explain it but that park was definitely what i saw in that past life regression so i have seen these confirmations and then there's other things about reincarnation i could go into if you wanted to but this is a, about recovered memory isn't it hypnosis yeah well I, maybe i mean i it's probably worth saying that i'm asking you to focus on this very narrow area of past life regression and the recovery of memory where that really has to sit in a wider context of evidence for the continuation of consciousness because if you if you see it outside of that context um, it makes let's say less sense okay but if you see it inside the context of the research on near-death experience where people are having conscious experiences when they have no right to be having conscious experiences when their their brain is totally flatlined and and not only having this are the most uh, incomparable woolly wonderful conscious experience of their lives of meeting their, their relatives and feeling the warmth and love of god descending upon them and the research into after-death communication that's really been done scrupulously um in in, in laboratories now with all sorts of quintuple blinding where again people mediums are getting access to information they've no earthly right to have so there is this wider context of evidence and um, that that presents the continuation of consciousness that whatever the brain model tells us it doesn't tell us everything and to my knowledge the the most compelling research on past life is specifically about children that remember past lives so i'm aware that i think it's ian stevenson um has gone around and documented these children who start talking about being someone else um, and i don't know if you want to speak to that but would you um say that, that is the most scientific evidence for it at the moment as compared to say regression sessions or is there also a kind of effort to um apply science to the to to regression to pulling verifiable facts out of regression no, I haven't come across real work to try and pull verifiable facts out of regression. And it would be interesting. an interesting thing mm. to do. And also another thing, just change the subjects a little bit, is some people have been 
progressing with the hypnosis so they take trying to take people to a life that's a hundred years in the future mm -hmm. that fascinates me i'd like to get like a hundred people separately you know hypnotize them take them all forward a hundred years and see if there's any consistencies what if they all said the same thing it'd be fascinating but um you couldn't prove anything but it, i'd find it interesting but yeah um, well you could prove it one day <laughs> yeah come <laughs> around quick enough you know <laughs> with um children with past life memories that was uh ian stevenson and then dr jim tucker took over mm. from him jim tucker worked with ian stevenson for a few years and also jim matlock's a great researcher there and carol bowman and professor erlinda haraldson was at the um university in iceland he was really good and i've interviewed all of those people and I talked to Jim Tucker about the famous cases that he investigated. And Carol Bowman uh, talked about her own son. And this is how she got into it. And she's a, a fully qualified psychologist. And she wasn't really interested in this stuff. But her son had this terrible fear of loud noises when he was small, like going to fireworks or something, those loud bangs like gunshots. And he talked about his previous life where he was a soldier in the civil war in america and he drew things out he drew out a gun carriage he drew a map of a battlefield and showed where the different forces were on the battlefield and he talked about his past life and they were able to track down this gun carriage which was a peculiar design which you wouldn't expect a four-year-old boy to make up and know about how he balanced the weight of the cannon on the wheels and this was for transporting it and not be used in the battlefield because you know what a cannon looks like in a battlefield you can imagine it with the big wheels either side and they tracked down that battle and they matched his map to the historical record of what the soldiers drew at the time and he was pretty much right the shape of the field where all the forces were there's no way he could have known those things but you know as a four-year-old boy and that's just one example of how these things come up with children over and over. And uh, Ian Stevenson pulled together, I think, about 1,500 cases. And Jim Tucker's done such great work. And there's famous cases that he's done with um, James Linegar. And there's also a woman who um, had a boy who claimed to be a famous baseball player. And he was coming up with all sorts of information. And when he was... I think seven years old he was out on the the pitcher's mound and threw the first pitch for the new york yankees and because he became so well known for this and the when he was four or five years old he'd be using the baseball bat and people who really knew about baseball were watching him and how he had his hands and his feet and his stance and how he swung the bat and they were saying that is exactly like the guy he claims to be he used to do it and he had that whole movement and he was obsessed and this famous baseball player sorry i don't remember his name being english we're not really into baseball mm. but um the famous baseball player had a had a falling out with i think a guy called babe ruth mm. he's the most uh, famous one isn't he yeah and when this kid saw a picture of babe ruth he started shouting at it mm. and he was a little five-year-old and he was saying that son of a bitch and all these sorts of things <laughs> Yeah, the, and so, these memories almost always fade by age five or six or seven, don't they? There's, I, as far as I'm aware, there's no children that go on into their teenage years as an adult who'd carrying these memories of a past life still around. There are a couple of people. Oh, right. And, um, yeah, but you're right. It does tend to fade. It's almost like when they're younger, that the world's a different place, isn't it, when you're three, four, five years mm. old? But when you're seven, you become more aware and you're at school and you have to be more logical and you're with your friends. And you, I suppose that's something that can affect it. But I, I interviewed a woman called Jenny Cockle and uh, documentaries have been made about her. She remembers past lives and she said it's just like remembering uh, stuff from your current life for her. And she's never had hypnosis to recover memories. And she remembered a life as a woman in Ireland in the 1930s, and she had six children, and she lived in North England. 
and she went over to this town and she said she was walking through it and it's exactly how she remembered it apart from a couple of the shops had changed and maybe that there's a new building site over there they built some more houses she said it was like being 50 years old and then going back to your childhood home when you were seven and you hadn't been there for decades and she walked to the cottage where she used to live she knew exactly where it was and it was now derelict and the roof had fallen in and everything but she managed to find out who the family was and that's how she got her surname because she knew her name was mary but she didn't know the surname and she tracked down the children and she talked to them about it first of all she didn't say she thought she was the reincarnation of their mother but they have now accepted her as the reincarnation of her mother because she knew so much stuff and it's not stuff that maybe you could research on facebook mm. but you know she she was doing this uh, in the 80s i've got the book here somewhere i'm just looking behind me i can't see where it is but she um she would have stories for them like she'd say remember that time we were in the garden and there was the pond at the bottom of the garden you found a frog and you were playing with it too much and you hurt it and the these guys were like the children were saying there's no way a stranger could know that story i i remember that incident and she had loads of stories like that and talking to them about the motherhood and looking after them and how the the father was a drunk and abusive and how eventually he just disappeared and she described him perfectly so that's why they made a documentary about her because she had so much information but then she also remembered a life in japan and the japanese film crew flew her out to japan and she took them to the house and the family that was in the house of um had it for a long time a couple of hundred years it's that old and it's passed down through the family and she was talking about the house when they went inside and saying oh you've changed that and you've knocked that wall through and there used to be a balcony thing over there and the family were stunned they were saying how could she know that we've made these changes in our house she's absolutely correct and she talked about how when she was like 17 years old and i think this was like 1880 something like that she had been uh she was going to be married off it was an arranged marriage and she was on this ferry with her father and they were crossing to go to meet this guy that she was supposed to marry and there was a big swell of water and she fell off the boat and she drowned and that is part of that family's history they they remember that story of that happening so she has all those memories she's never had hypnosis and it's all correct you know and it's a thing where i am a skeptic and i do you know worry about some things and i don't just accept everything i hear but you hear these things and it seems such strong information you know it's like ian stevenson said it's highly suggestive of reincarnation and mm. uh, of all of the explanations reincarnation is probably the one that makes the most sense yeah yeah i can certainly see how you would how you would come to that yeah i'd like to in a moment return to this point and kind of finish on some metaphysical questions of what are the implications of this for the self and consciousness and all the rest before i get there though i'd like to just ask a bit about any potential kind of dangers or drawbacks to this and the reason why well not not i'm not doing it to be unpleasant about the experience of it but i think that the only way you can really um uh appreciate and go into something is by being aware of the the shadow any potential shadows to it so i suppose prior to maybe a year ago i'd maybe thought that past life regressions gave some kind of insight into the nature of consciousness and the realities of reincarnation or maybe their theater of the mind or maybe they're both of those things but I'd not seen them as having any real kind of drawbacks or being unhealthy or dangerous to the individual anyway, either past life regression or any kind of regression. And in in doing research for the podcast on memory, um, I did encounter people who certainly professed that they had been damaged by regression, not so much past life regression, but therapists regressing them in a way that 
they were led to believe things happened to them, which they later concluded didn't. Either that they had done something nefarious and awful, like being involved in a satanic cult and committed a sacrifice, or they'd been abused by family members. And then later on, they would come to think, no, what happened there was I started having these kind of weird fantasies and dreams. And my therapist was telling me, no, these are memories. These aren't fantasies. This isn't imagination. These are memories. And there were lawsuits about this in, in the 80s. It's a massive controversy that hasn't gone away to this day. But that really made me pause and think, well, gee, there, there could be a, another side to this. Um, various kind of... So, the, the idea of someone imagining something that now there is this kind of barrier with past life, right? That it's not happening to you exactly. But I wonder, um, I, I just noted down a few concerns I could see. Okay. So like the idea of like imagining something very traumatic happened to you, uh, which didn't, or that you did something. Um, the other thing I could imagine would be that if you imagine someone has done something to you or you've done something to them, either now or in a past life, that someone that you know in this life, how that could affect your relationship. A concept like romantic infatuation. I think a lot of people start looking at past lives because they find it difficult to understand the experience of falling in love or kind of romantic infatuation and how someone could accentuate that with the narrative. And then the final thing I had was uh, cult issues. Like, and there's a particular example, there's a guy in Australia who um, believes himself to be the reincarnation of Jesus. And he has a group of followers who believe they were either the disciples or Mary Magdalene or the soldiers that executed Jesus. And it's clear they've done like very intense visualizations around this. And I think it's an interesting question, given what you've already said, uh, Simon, that you, more than the vast majority of people, are aware of the intense power of the imagination, right? And you can make your hand actually turn white just through imagining. So what do you see as any potential dangers or harms um, with conflation of imagination and memory? And how do you navigate those kind of waters? Well, we definitely don't want to re-traumatize somebody in hypnosis, in regression, whether it's this life or a past life. And what we do when we, we go in through the hypnotic induction, particularly with past life regression, is we guide them through uh, muscle relaxation and then bring in visualization and we get to a point where I say, you can take yourself into this really nice garden and I describe the garden for them and we describe it as the safe garden. And so if we're in a point in a past life where something's very traumatic, I can say to them, okay, now take yourself back to the garden. You are now back in that safe garden. Everything's okay. You leave that life behind. That is no longer your life. You leave behind all the emotions, the sensations, you are safe in this beautiful, lovely garden. And that takes them away from the trauma instantly. And when you're regressing somebody, say, to some point in this life, you talk about a safe place. And you can talk to them about what their safe place is before you start the hypnosis. Some people might say a garden. Others might say it's a beach or their, their favorite you know, place. When they were a kid, maybe it was their grandparents' house or something. And you can say, okay, take yourself to your safe place if you come up against something traumatic. But uh, you also talked about how there were memories recovered and they were told they were memories about abuse hmm. or something. Yeah, from therapists who really, the impression you get from listening to what the clients later report is that they were strongly encouraged to believe that anything that they, they recovered was a memory was very definitely a memory, was very definitely not a fantasy. Yeah, it's it's odd. I, I would never do that. And one thing, if I was to regress somebody back to a point in this life, I point out that at least 30% of what comes up is not reliable. Mm. And so if you look at the whole of the memories, you don't know which 30% is unreliable. So the thing to do is to, to take it from that viewpoint that, Whatever you recover in hypnosis as a memory, you cannot guarantee 100% happened because you don't know which part yeah. of the, the, you know. And so that is something I would always say to somebody if I was going to regress them to something in this life, particularly if they think it might be traumatic. Mm. But uh, it also reminds me of something else. It's changing the subject a little bit. 
but there was a thing in the 90s where people were claiming to have been abducted by aliens. Mm. And psychologists said, well, th- it's not that. What actually it is, is your brain covering up sexual abuse. Mm. And there was the guy who was professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, Dr. John Mack. He was interested in alien abduction. And, you know, being professor of psychiatry at that place, you've got to be a really good psychiatrist. And what he said is, where's the link? Okay, so you've got sexual abuse, you've got alien abduction. How do you link those two things together? Somebody's just said that's the reason for it. But as a psychiatrist, there's no link to say that's definitely what's happening. It's a theory, but I see no proof for it. Yeah, no, I think John Mack was right in that. Whatever you think of, you know, John Mack took the alien hypothesis very, very seriously and, and wrote books on it. But I think in his criticism of that, it, it he was correct. And I think there's been a huge problem of people imposing their theories too strongly. Okay, whether it's like all these things are a core of sexual abuse or it's all really alien abduction or, or whatever. I think there's, um, when you don't recognize that even if there's a signal there, there's also a lot of noise and you can't necessarily divide the two, then it becomes problematic. One more aspect on this I'd like to ask about is, have you observed any uh, problems coming from people who change their perspectives on their relationships with either parents or romantic partners or friends from considering they've encountered them in a past life and maybe they think that they burned them at the stake in a past life or and did something horrendous to them or had something horrendous done to them. And that could then change the nature of the relationship or how they interact with them in this life. Has that ever come up as, as an issue in your work? No, it hasn't come up as an issue. I've had clients tell me that things are better now. Right. That, that they've, they've come to a realization about something, um, understanding and insights from seeing a relationship in a past life. And, there was a woman who had a terrible relationship with her mother in this life. And we did the past life regression where she saw that relationship again in a past life. And she told me that for the first time in maybe a couple of decades, she rung her mum up just to say, how are you? Mm. And it had changed her attitude. So I've seen positive results from it, but not negative results. But I suppose that doesn't mean to say, you know, that, the clients who get the negative results just aren't telling me about it. So I wouldn't know, you know, they, they might be thinking, well, I'm not doing that again. Everything's ruined, but I've never heard of, from my experience of it causing a problem. Right. No, I'm just wanting to ask in, in my perception, it's when it's done with a, a lack of humility, say, and, and, and without this sense of like signal and noise and, and with therapists, I think wanting to push an agenda that then it can tend to, that's when I observe it kind of goes wrong when, when therapists are, are trying to make a name for themselves by writing a book and, and look at these great cases they have. Um, and it's maybe not sort of client centered that way. So no, I was just interested to ask about, about your experience of that. Um, final thing I'd like to come on to is really a metaphysical question to finish. And I'll just pick up on the, example you gave a moment ago of, of uh, was it jenny cockle yeah yeah so jenny cockle is a lady in this life in a particular body but she also remembers being a mother in ireland and in japan and then the 19th century before that and all of the bodies in those lives would have been very different the personality structure might have been very different there'd been very different chemicals in the system and those chemicals can't be detached from consciousness and who we are in some ways, if we have more dopamine or in our system or, or what's the other one, the cuddle chemical uh, or more adrenaline or all of these things change our personality. So it obviously raises the question, who is Jenny Cockle or who is the consistent entity that is behind and beyond all those lives? Now, obviously, I don't expect you to say, oh, it's this, Richard, <laughs> this is how you understand it. But <laughs> I'm inviting you to speculate on what does this past life experience tell you about who you truly are well there's um you know you're going down the rabbit hole into the the more the weirder stuff uh, the theories that come up because people who have near-death experiences say when they're in that afterlife space time doesn't exist and they can tell you what happened to them 
in a linear description of this happened, then that, then that. But actually, they felt like everything happened in the same moment. And there's also that. So that idea is that that's why they say it's eternal, because time doesn't exist. It's all happening in one moment. So if we have a soul and we have lots of past lives, if time doesn't exist, then your soul is in every past life in the same moment. And I always think of it as, as kind of like a tree where the trunk and the branches are your soul and every leaf is a different life. And so the tree's experiencing all those leaves at the same time as your soul's experiencing all the lives at the same time. So what when we talk about, say, your spirit or your soul, it is uh, something that is eternal that has put a percentage of itself in all these different lives to experience all these different things. And thinking about it like that, it doesn't become, say, oh, it's just you and you're 100%, your soul is in this life and you die and then you're reincarnated 100% in the next life. It makes me think that if there is a soul and it's experiencing lives like that, then it's a lot weirder, and we'd be a lot less able to understand what it is and what its existence is like. Does that help answer the question? Yeah, it's, it's a, yeah, as, as much as I'm asking you to answer an impossible question, I'm aware of that, right? So it's, it's, a, <laughs> it's, it's something I think that's come up for me more uh, as, a, as a kind of critical question on this over the years when I've become aware of just how much our personality structure is subject to our biology in a sense and subject to evolutionary forces that have gone on for as long as they've gone on for and um, because i think probably 20 years ago i might have the idea that the with an idea that you do get in spiritualism okay that the body falls away and it's like taking off a jacket or something and the personality structure um goes on and remains almost uninterrupted by this and then i think well that that can't be quite right because when i meet my relatives i see that i have similar traits to them okay and i have things like if i see something kind of gooey or icky i have a disgust reflex and that disgust reflex is a part of my personality to an extent it's part of my psyche but it's also something that is purely a product i would think of an evolutionary response to stay away from things that might harm me so all these kind of biological stuff that must fall away but that's also kind of big chunk about who i am so what you know when i hear people talking about like um uh, animals in the afterlife or something and well a big part of who my animal and my dogs are is their like appetite and you know, they like to eat and they get excited about their meals but do they get excited about meals in this kind of soul realm of the afterlife and if they don't well, who would they be so th these kind of perhaps irreconcilable kind of contradictions arise for me that I'm, I'm looking to chip into a little bit of that to say well what exactly falls away at the point of death and what is it that's true and remains at that point and that that's the question that's occupying me yeah i know this it's like that's why i'm so fascinated because you, you can't find the answers it gets so complicated and there's an area of the afterlife that the um the society for psychical research like over a hundred years ago they called it summerland and that when you die you, you go into this place that's kind of like the idealized England, but you know, it's, it's fair enough then picturing it like that because they were in London and mm. it was, you know, Victorian, you know, the British Victorians, you know, they had the empire and everything. And they, oh, that's the afterlife. And they had mediums bringing people back through saying, oh, I've, I've died and I'm in this wonderful place and it's all green fields and we have a wonderful house and we have afternoon tea and, mm. And it's it seems to be from their research that when you die, you you continue being yourself, and you might go to this wonderful place. But after being there a while, which contradicts this idea that it's eternal and there is no time, but after being there a while, you start to realize that you're more of a soul than the person you were when you were alive. And so, there's that idea of Summerland, but then the afterlife is eternal and then people who have near-death experiences don't describe summerland at all they describe a completely other place and so that this all contradicts each other but each different thing has its own bit of evidence that suggests it could be correct and that's yeah i that's know what you mean 
yeah that's how come i've done 275 episodes <laughs> and still trying to find answers because you know i could almost come to the point of saying oh well clearly this is some kind of wish fulfillment right because look everyone goes to their own heaven so unsurprisingly victorian english people go to a kind of victorian heaven where they have servants bringing the afternoon tea in the gardens <laughs> yeah, and go, oh yeah. come on but then then you can't say that because there are other aspects of it that seem objective and and universal too so the idea of like uh, in, in near-death experience, for example, things are quite culturally relative in that Christians tend to meet Jesus and uh, the Hindus have a particular experience of their afterlife God and J J the Japanese meet, a, they're not a religious people, they meet a kind of nondescript light. But what's objective is this all-encompassing love that they meet, which trans anything, transcends anything they felt in the earthly realm, potentially. So there's a, it's almost like the, the, the notion of objectivity and subjectivity switches, where we consider the material world to be very objective. When I, when I walk downstairs into my house, it, all the walls are in the same place and the doors are in the same place and the wallpaper is the same color. Um, but my, my subjective feelings, they're more, they can, they can change. I might walk down there and be in a good mood or a bad mood or, or whatever. Uh, but it seems like in, in this after-death realm people describe when they, they come back from not, through near-death experiences, uh, the, the, the material contents of it can be very different. It can be an English field or it can be a, a, a nondescript light or, or whatever. But the, the objective thing is the feeling, is this intense love that's giving rise to that experience. It's a, that's, what it, that's what it comes through to me from it as, as being the objective element yeah yeah people even say that love's not the right word it's it's far more powerful than that but another thing is that i interviewed a lady called nancy rines and she had this near-death experience and she found herself in this amazing landscape with this field and these mountains in the distance and somebody came walking over to her who said that they were part of their spirit team and uh, nancy was like you're part of my spirit team she says yeah and Nancy looked around behind her and the whole landscape was just dissolving away into a mist. And this person said to her, oh yeah, this whole landscape, we, we created it just for you, for this moment. And when you're gone, this, this won't exist anymore. Yeah. Which makes you wonder about the landscapes here. <laughs> Are they just yeah. mist? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. So Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, it seems when people have a near-death experience, it's not that they've gone to, into the afterlife. It's as though the place that they go to is created for them just for that moment. And whoever creates it for them knows them so intimately, they know exactly what they need at that moment. And it, I, I once, somebody described the near-death experience as like a spiritual kick up the ass. It's like they, they give you an experience that will make you change for the better because that's what you need. And I, I don't know if it's an accident or it's done on purpose. You know, they might, the spirits might be looking down at you and see you're in a car accident and then suddenly think, oh, look, look, quick, grab them. Give them that NDE. Let's give them a kick up the ass. Well, I think you'll be doing how many podcasts you've done now? 200 and something? Yeah, 275. I think it'll be a few hundred more before yeah. we start to resolve those kind of questions. So thank you very much for coming on, Simon. Let everyone know where they can hear your podcast and find out more about your work doing regression therapy. And I'll, of course, link to the details in the box, but just give it a verbal shout out. Uh, my website is pastlifeshypnosis.co.uk. And uh, if somebody wanted to was thinking of a past life regression, they can go on there and get into my calendar and book for themselves a 20 minute consultation. It's completely free of charge. Uh, I have a past lives podcast and that is on Amazon, Spotify, Apple, just everywhere. And my other podcast is called the alien UFO podcast. And that one I've done 80 episodes. So yeah, you can find my podcasts on all the usual places. I will link to them. And I have actually not listened to the Alien UFO podcast. I've heard you mention it, but after I listen to the Robert Snow episode, I'm going to start downloading those and I might tempt you back on in the future for a conversation about that. Yeah, yeah that, that'd be fascinating because um, I've got a book by a guy called Ray Hernandez. It's called yeah. The Mind of God. 
and it kind of links the afterlife to UFOs and reincarnation, near-death experiences and all sorts of things. Right, yeah, I've, um, Ray Hernandez is a fellow that did that. He was involved primarily in that big study, wasn't he, of, of looking at people's accounts of um, their experience with, uh, what's the correct term, um, non-human intelligences and uh, finding like a lot of them were actually entirely positive in, in contrast to what the X-Files tells you they are. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so yeah, I've, not, I've not heard of his, what must be a new book for, or newish book then. That's a... Uh, yeah, it's it's. Um, I think it's called something called the Greater Reality. There's four books, and the one I've got called the Mind of God. It's just supposed to be an introduction, and it's also two hundred pages. And the other ones are eight hundred pages each. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Quite. I'm only about a quarter of the way through. Is eight hundred pages. Yeah. Okay. Thanks very much. And. Um, I'd advise people check it out and, and I can fully recommend the session. So thanks again, Simon, and we'll speak hopefully again sometime. Yeah, great. Thanks a lot.